Hello, everyone. Welcome to the October 25th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The U.S. Supreme Court declined an emergency application to stop the enforcement of a COVID-19 vaccine mandate for health care workers in Maine. Maine Governor Janet Mills instituted the mandate in late September, requiring health care workers to be fully vaccinated by October 29 or risk losing their jobs. Several health care workers challenged the mandate, and after a federal district court judge denied the health care workers injunctive relief, they quickly filed their emergency application with the U.S. Supreme Court. But Justice Stephen Breyer denied the application without prejudice Tuesday afternoon. The Supreme Court has previously used the emergency docket, sometimes called the shadow docket, to reject vaccine mandate challenges from public school teachers in New York and students and employees from Indiana University. But this case marks the first time the court addressed a statewide COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Shortly after the Supreme Court's denial, a three-judge panel of the First Circuit also ruled against these plaintiffs, rejecting their request for a preliminary injunction. The First Circuit wrote that it cannot find absent any constitutional or statutory violation any error in the district court's conclusion that the rule promotes strong public interests and that an injunction would not serve the public interest. Now the case is likely headed straight back to the Supreme Court. And there are many similar cases across the nation and in California, and the workers who are reluctant to be vaccinated are anxiously awaiting to see if any of them meet with success. A WCAB panel reversed an AOECOE finding arousing out of an LAPD basketball injury. In this case, Erica Spence filed a claim alleging that she sustained industrial injury to her right foot while playing in a basketball tournament with other women from the LAPD. This occurred at the Basketball Invitational Tournament held at a facility in the city of La Puente and hosted by a private organization. At the WCAB trial of this case on the sole issue of AOE-COE, Spence testified that no one encouraged her or pressured her to play on the women's basketball team, and there would not be any negative consequences if she did not join the team nor would there be any promotions or benefits if she did join. Her participation on the team was voluntary, and participating in the tournament was also voluntary. The employer presented the testimony of a sergeant along with an excerpt from the LAPD policy manual. The sergeant testified that while basketball is on a list of approved activities, The tournament in which applicant was injured did not meet the requirements outlined in the LAPD manual. Based on this evidence, however, the work comp judge found that applicant's injury did occur AOE-COE. 
but the LAPD's petition for reconsideration was granted, and the WCB panel, WCAB panel found that she did not sustain an injury, AOECOE, to her right foot in the case of Spence versus the City of Los Angeles. The case was based on Labor Code Section 3600A9, which bars compensation for an injury out of voluntary participation in any off-duty recreational, social, or athletic activity, not constituting part of the employee's work-related duties, except where these activities are reasonable expectancy of or are expressly or impliedly required by the employment. They cited the 1983 case of Ezzy v. WCAB, where it was decided that the evaluation of whether an injury is barred by this statute requires a two-pronged test. One, whether the employee subjectively believes his or her participation in an activity is expected by the employer, and two, whether that belief is objectively reasonable. In this case, the panel wrote that the first prong of the Ezzy case was not met here by this applicant. Applicant did not establish that she subjectively believed that participation in the invitational tournament was required. Additionally, the panel noted that departments have the ability to limit the scope of potential liability by designating or pre-approving athletic activities or fitness regimens, which was not done in this case. Instead, the LAPD manual specifically outlined the conditions under which injury resulting from athletic activity will be considered on duty. The Federal District Court of Central California awarded a former Walmart pharmacist $27 million in total damages, agreeing that the retail giant routinely denied her work breaks and overtime pay. The pharmacist, Ms. Nakamenish, said Walmart told her to obtain her immunization certification so she could provide on-site immunizations to pharmacy patients. But Walmart refused to compensate her for the time she spent studying and preparing for the exam. She also claimed that getting the certification increased her workload several times over, but Walmart refused to provide additional staffing to meet the increased demand. She claimed she was also denied overtime wages along with meal and rest breaks, forced to perform work off the clock studying for the exam, and given inaccurate wage statements that did not account for the hours she actually spent working. She said Walmart enacted a policy prohibiting its pharmacists from leaving the pharmacy unattended. This, she said, made it impossible for her to take her legally mandated meal and rest breaks. And because of a shortage of pharmacists who could cover for her, she said she was effectively forced to work throughout their shifts without pause. Walmart also committed numerous pharmacy violations, she said, and instances of noncompliance with state law, including charging Medicare beneficiaries above the Medi-Cal reimbursement rate for prescriptions and failing to provide eligible patients with a Medicare discount. 
She also said Walmart failed to report necessary data to the Controlled Substance Utilization Review and Evaluation System. This is also known as the CURES program, which is a controlled database of controlled substances prescriptions dispensed throughout California. The CURE system requires pharmacists to file weekly reports with the California Department of Justice. Nick Manish reported these violations to her supervisor and asked that they investigate and correct the various compliance issues. But Walmart responded by firing her, which she claims was solely in retaliation for her complaining about her non-compliance with state laws. And now our crime reports. A Calabasas physician was sentenced to 14 months in federal prison for accepting nearly $800,000 in bribes and kickbacks as part of a conspiracy that unlawfully billed the workers' compensation system for compounded medication prescriptions. Back in October 2019, 56-year-old Dr. Amir Friedman pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy in this case, and the count was to commit honest services and mail and wire fraud, and also he pled guilty to a violation of the Travel Act, a federal law that forbids the use of U.S. mail for the purpose of aiding bribery. He admitted to conspiring with New Age Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, which is a Beverly Hills-based company, and an unnamed marketer to violate federal law. And, according to a related 2016 indictment, Hutan Melmed allegedly operated and was the de facto owner of New Age Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. He also had business interests in other pharmacies, including Roxanne Pharmacy Incorporated, Concierge Compounding Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Alexo Incorporated, and Portland Professional Pharmacy. Melamed entered into a plea agreement himself back in 2020 and was sentenced to six months in prison on March 29, 2021. Insurance companies under the California Workers' Comp System reimbursed New Age Pharmacy for dispensing these prescription drugs and other pharmaceuticals while the unnamed marketer was paid commissions for facilitating the referral of these compounded drugs. The marketer provided pre-printed prescription pads for compounded drugs to Dr. Friedman and offered Friedman kickbacks and bribes for each prescription he wrote to the pharmacy. After Friedman wrote the kickback-tainted prescriptions, New Age dispensed the compounded drugs and build insurance companies for the reimbursements, and ship the compounded drugs to work cop injured workers. In total, Friedman accepted in excess of $780,000 in kickbacks and bribes. The Labor Commissioner's Office cited JPI Construction $1.7 million for wage theft violations, which affected 265 of its workers. An investigation found that the San Diego-based company failed to pay workers properly on commercial and residential construction projects, 
resulting in minimum wage and overtime violations. The labor law violations were reported by the Contractors and Carpenters Cooperation Committee, which is a nonprofit labor management organization. The investigation found that employees doing framing and sheetrock work were paid a flat rate that did not include any overtime. This resulted in frequent minimum wage and overtime violations. Investigators also interviewed workers and audited the employer's payroll records to identify more violations. This audit uncovered illegally modified timesheets that removed record of the overtime hours the workers should have been paid. When workers are paid less than minimum wage, they are entitled to liquidated damages that equal the amount of underpaid minimum wages plus interest. Waiting time penalties are imposed when the employer intentionally fails to pay all wages due to the employee at the time of separation. The citation's total exceeds $1,771, with approximately $1,600,000 payable to the workers. The citations include $143,200 in civil penalties. Those are payable to the state. But the owners have appealed these citations. Under the appeal procedure, the Labor Commissioner's Office will hold a hearing before a hearing officer who will either affirm, modify, or dismiss the citations. Nearly 150 former workers of an elder care business in West Hills, California, will be paid more than $8.3 million in wage theft in the investigation that found employees were paid as little as $2.40 hourly. After an unsuccessful appeal of the citation, the October 1 judgment will compensate 148 employees who worked at six Adat Shalom board and care locations. The judgment upholds wage theft citations issued to the business and its owner, Angelica Rheingold, in 2018. The Filipino Workers Center, which is a nonprofit that helps Filipino workers and their families, referred the case to the California Commissioner's Office, and they assisted in identifying employees during the investigation. The investigation uncovered that the caregivers at the six facilities in West Hills were paid less than the minimum wage for each hour they worked, also not paid overtime for working 24-hour shifts six days a week, and not relieved from their duties to take meal or rest breaks, and provided pay stubs that withheld key information, such as hourly rate of pay and total number of hours worked. These live-in caregivers were responsible for monitoring and caring for elderly residents and hospice patients, many of them suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia. The caregivers were paid fixed amounts ranging from $1,500 to $1,800 a month, which amounted to $2.40 to $2.88 per hour. The center's executive director said employees at the care facilities could sleep at certain times but were still on call 24 hours a day.
They listened to monitors and had to leave their doors open so they'd be ready to respond. And they had to ask permission to leave if they needed to run to the store. And another former NFL player pleads guilty to Employment Development Department fraud. This one is former NFL wide receiver Kenbrill Tompkins. He pleaded guilty in a scheme to fraudulently obtain COVID-19 unemployment insurance benefits from the state of California. <clears throat> Tompkins entered guilty pleas on one count of unauthorized access, device fraud, and one count of aggravated identity theft. Tompkins used stolen identities of Florida residents to apply for COVID-19 unemployment benefits here in California. California approved the applications and the EDD sent $300,000 in benefits to the, in the form of debit cards to South Florida addresses that Tompkins set up for the scheme. Around 230000 of those funds were withdrawn from ATMs across South Florida. 33-year-old Tompkins played three seasons in the NFL from 2013 to 2015. He was with the New York Jets, the New England Patriots, and the Oakland Raiders, and earned $1.4 million as an NFL player. He is now scheduled to be sentenced on January 6th, and faces a maximum of 12 years in prison. Tompkins is the latest former professional athlete to be named in fraud schemes in recent weeks. Back in September, ex-NFL players Clinton Portis, Tamarick Vanover, and Robert McCune pleaded guilty to defrauding a league health care plan. And then, on October 7 and 8, on October 7, 18 ex-NBA players, including Terrence Williams and Glenn Big Baby Davis, were charged in an alleged $4 million scheme to defraud the NBA Players' Health and Welfare Benefit Plan. Now in regulatory news, the purpose of the OSHA federal regulation is to require employers to record and report work-related fatalities injuries, and illnesses. The regulation requires employers to consider an injury or illness to be work-related if an event or exposure in the work environment either caused or contributed to the resulting condition or significantly aggravated or pre-existing, a pre-existing injury or illness. Work-relatedness is presumed for injuries and illnesses resulting from events or exposures occurring in the work environment unless an exception specifically applies. And then OSHA goes on to define the work environment as the establishment and other locations where one or more employees are working or are present as a condition of their employment. So with these definitions in mind, employers have been asking OSHA if adverse reactions to an employer's mandated COVID-19 vaccine are reportable and recordable on the OSHA record-keeping log. 
So looking further in the regulations are the exceptions, and one of them might apply to this question. Another regulation specifies that an employer is not required to record injuries or illnesses if the injury or illness results solely from voluntary participation in a wellness program or in a medical, fitness, or recreational activity such as blood donation or a physical examination, flu shot, exercise class, racquetball, or baseball. However, this exception does not seem to apply here to this question since a mandated COVID vaccine is not voluntary, one of the conditions of the above exception regulation. It still might raise an employer's concern and not this exact and had not this exact question been answered by the OSHA coronavirus FAQ on this regulation, it would still be a problem. But OSHA posted the following. The DOL and OSHA, as well as other federal agencies, are working diligently to encourage COVID-19 vaccinations. OSHA went on to say that OSHA does not wish to have any appearance of discouraging workers from receiving COVID-19 vaccination and also does not wish to disincentivize employers' vaccination efforts. So they answered the question by saying that, as a result, OSHA will not enforce the rule, which is 29 CFR 1904's recording requirements, to require any employer to record workers' side effects from COVID-19 vaccination at least through May 2022. OSHA then said it will re-evaluate the agency's position at that time to determine the best course of action moving forward. By using the word any in this FAQ, the temporary reporting exception would seem to imply to both voluntary or mandatory COVID-19 vaccination adverse reactions. <clears throat> Nonetheless, this sui sponte OSHA decision to forgive a component of its ordinary regulatory oversight is puzzling and questionable. The stated purpose of OSHA is to regulate workplace safety and President Biden has announced his intent to mandate COVID-19 vaccinations, yet his agency in charge of monitoring safety does not seem to want to know about any adverse effect of the vaccination in the workplace. Employees across the nation are voicing their concern about the safety of the COVID-19 vaccination. This clause in the FAQ will no doubt trigger their suspicions rather than calm them down. A new set of studies released by the Workers' Compensation Research Institute examines the factors behind trends in medical payments per claim in state workers' compensation systems and the impact of legislative and regulatory changes on those costs. According to the Executive Vice President and Counsel for the WCRI, these reports are useful to identify where medical costs and care patterns may be changing and 
help identify where medical payments per claim or utilization may differ from other states. While the full impact of COVID-19 on state workers' compensation systems is currently unclear, these studies will be a useful baseline to modify any effects. The, useful, the study examines data in California and compares them with 17 other states. They note that California implemented multiple policy changes in recent years. The drug formulary required by Assembly Bill 1124 became effective in January 2018. And data in this report reflects up to 27 months of experience following the implementation of that new policy. And major fraud fighting measures were also enacted. The data in this study reflects up to 39 months of experience after the passage of the passage of these fraud anti-fraud bills. Also, eight, SB 863, a comprehensive reform legislation, went to effect on January 2013. Thus, the results in this report reflect the state system performance seven years after the implementation of SB 863. In addition, they note that California went through multiple medical fee schedule updates for hospital outpatient department and ambulatory surgery center services and non-hospital professional services. These regulatory changes are also potential factors influencing the results discussed in this report. Of the 18 states involved, individual reports are available for every state except Arkansas, Iowa, and Tennessee. So, for more information on these studies, please visit the WCRI, WCRI website. And in other news, AB5 was enacted in 2019 and it changed the rules for the California trucking industry model of doing business. It sets as law the ABC test for determining whether a worker is an employee or a true independent contractor. And some say that AB5 is part of the cause of the supply chain crisis gripping our nation currently. Supply chain issues in the United States and particularly the role ports in Los Angeles and Long Beach play have become a hot topic in the news cycle. Dwell time for containers at terminals is six days. The wait time for on-dock rail is nearly 12 days and it takes eight and a half days on average for containers on the street to find dock space at warehouses. The situation is so bad that a few weeks ago about 65 container vessels were stacked up along the coast waiting to berth and unload. In addition to the nationwide labor shortage, ports in California face statewide specific challenges. Last week, President Biden announced that the Port of Los Angeles will join the Port of Long Beach in operating 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, in an attempt to clear the shipyards of cargo containers and allow the dozens of ships anchored offshore to offload their cargo. But, according to the California Trucking Association, 
there are more than 70,000 predominantly minority-owned independent truckers operating in California, and about 17,000 of these truckers are registered to bring goods into the Los Angeles and Long Beach ports. Many of those are contractors who own or lease their trucks and do not receive workers' compensation or other benefits enjoyed by full-time employees. And many of these independent contractors are hired by large, well-known trucking companies, and many of them contract with multiple trucking companies, both large and small. Many of the independent contractors are small, small businesses themselves and utilize employees and contractors. This business model has existed in California ports for many decades, they say. And for trucking, the B prong of the ABC test in AB5 is viewed as making it difficult to hire independent owner-operators as drivers because it defines a person engaged in the primary activity of the hiring company, like a trucking company hiring a truck driver, as an employee. There were two AB5 trucking-related cases headed to the U.S. Supreme Court docket for this term. On October 5, of the SCOTUS denied, on October 5, the Supreme Court of the U.S. denied certiorari in the Cal Carthage case, but they have not yet ruled on another case brought by the California Trucking Association. In that case, a federal judge issued an injunction on January 2020 blocking the implementation of the law in the trucking industry in California until legal challenges could wind their way through the courts. Then in April, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against the California Trucking Association, but enforcement of that order has been stayed pending a Supreme Court of the United States decision to review or not review the case. This means the January 2020 injunction is now still in effect against AB5. So for now, carriers have been taking the wait-and-see approach on the law and the court's process. But they're now facing a near-term reality that the independent contractor system for truckers might not be possible and they will have to face an increase in cost to hire these drivers. Other carriers have been cutting ties with California as the cost of doing business in the state are greater than the reward and they choose to pull out of any California operations to shield themselves from the impact of AB5 law. And depending on how the Supreme Court rules on the pending case regarding how California's AB5 applies to the trucking industry, the problem may only get worse. If owner-operators who contract with larger freight companies must be classified as employees, there will likely be a huge contraction in the trucking capacity in California. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. 
by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I am Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news. Thank you.